This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com is, is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Professor Rob Nadelson. He's recognized as one of, if not the, country's leading scholar on the constitutional amendment procedure. He's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and the Independence Institute, where he also heads the Article 5 Information Center. He's author of the book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Meant, which I just picked up, haven't had a chance to read. Professor, welcome to An Economy of One. It's good to be back with you. I appreciate it. We had an article in our local paper about, and I'm going to say this wrong, but you can correct me later, about Ohio joining a constitutional convention. And talked to my producer, and she said, oh, you got to talk to Professor Nadelson. He's the guy. So (laughs) let's start with, because I got a lot of questions about this. One, let's start with the misnomer of a constitutional convention. And educate us on what we're really looking at here. Well, you know, if you ever had kids, you know, the toddlers will sometimes fix on a certain name. Mm-hmm. So uh, every time they see a truck, no matter what kind of truck it is, they'll say fire truck. And you'll say, well, no, that's a pickup truck. And they'll, they'll come back and they'll say fire truck. Yeah. <laughs> and that's sort of what's, what's happened here. There are a lot of different kinds of conventions but some folks, especially opponents, have sort of fixed on this name, Constitutional Convention. What, what actually is going on is there's a national movement for what the Constitution calls a convention for proposing amendment. Okay. It's a way in which the people can, uh, can rein in the federal government or change the rules by wiring around Congress. It was, it was put into the Constitution as a way, to people, a way that the people could write the system uh, in case Congress kind of got out of whack. And a lot of people think the federal government has gotten out of whack, and so they want to use this process. Now, one of the things that, and I'll admit my ignorance on this, I consider myself fairly well-read, but I bought into the Constitutional Convention language, and my first thought was, geez, do I really want to open that can of worms because I was afraid of the process of everybody and their brother that doesn't agree with me, putting in amendments that would become part of the Constitution forever that I wouldn't agree with. But that's really not what happens in a no, in, no. In this, um, does it? And I, I went down exactly the same road, and I had exactly the same concerns. And I started, um, I started exploring this issue several years ago, and I found out that this whole notion that a convention for proposing amendments can't be controlled or that it's a constitutional convention is largely the product of a disinformation campaign from the, from the 1970s. But give me a quick analogy. Uh, the Constitution provides for several different kinds of conventions. Mm-hmm. When, you, uh, when, when you propose a constitutional amendment, uh, the Congress can say, as it did with the 21st Amendment, repealing prohibition, this is going to go to state conventions. Well, when the state convention considers whether to approve the amendment, they get to vote yes or no. They don't get to vote on, you know, whether we want to give the president a six-year term. They have to stay on uh, their agenda. And the same thing is true for a convention for proposing amendments. The way it works is that the state legislatures 
uh, send resolutions to Congress and they say, we want uh, an amendment on, let's say, requiring the federal government to balance its budget. Once two-thirds of the states uh, agree, then Congress has to call this convention. The convention's a meeting among the states. And what the convention can consider is an amendment for a balanced budget. That's it. Um, and, and this has been reinforced not just by historical practice. It's also been reinforced by a fair amount of, uh, of, of, of case law. So, um, uh, so the, the, the evidence is pretty clear. I'm not alone in this. I mean, virtually all the recent scholarship that's looked at it's arrived at pretty much the same conclusion. But you still got those folks who were thinking, you know, in 1970s terms, and, and they, they've just not gotten their terminology straight. Yeah, I mean, I, my, my first thought was, oh, great, we're going to have a constitutional amendment for free health care, a constitutional amendment for free education. <laughs> and, you know, in Ohio, a constitutional amendment taxing Gary Rathbun all of his income or something. Yeah, you know, okay. I mean, I, I just thought that that's what I heard. I mean, uh, yeah. I first heard about this from Mark Levin, uh, who's a big proponent of this. And I, I either wasn't paying close enough attention or didn't do my homework or something, but it kind of scared me. But we've had these in the past. Now, am I right in assuming that most of the amendments to the Constitution passed the Bill of Rights? Did that happen, something like this? Okay. Well, this is, the answer is a little, a little complicated. Okay. The, the Constitution, first off, any, any amendment has to be approved by three-quarters of the state. Okay. So you're not going to get an amendment for free health care past 38 states. Okay. <laughs> I mean, enough for the foreseeable future. So yeah. just put that fear aside. Um, the, the, there are only two ways to propose an amendment, because you've got to have it proposed before it's ratified. One way is for Congress to do it, and the other is for this gathering of state representatives called the Convention for oh. Proposing Amendments to do it. Now, Congress can propose an amendment any day of the week on any subject it wants for any reason. Convention can't do that. A convention has to propose an amendment within the you know, parameters set, set by the state. So the question is, has this happened before? We've not had a convention propose an amendment under the Article 5 procedure of the Constitution, but we've had over 40 of these conventions of states. We know how they work. Uh, just pick one out of the air. In 1861, Virginia wanted to head off the Civil War. So what Virginia did is it called a convention of the states, and, uh, that, and the purpose of the convention of the states was to come up with a constitutional amendment, and that's what they did. It wasn't ultimately um, uh, sent on to the states for ratification, but the procedure's been used again and again. And right now, Gary, uh, we've, got a, we've got a call uh, pending from Arizona. Uh, last Thursday, Arizona proposed a convention of states to plan for a future amendments convention. So this has been something that's been done many, many times before, although not specifically under Article 5 of the Constitution. By the way, I printed off your uh, Article 5 handbook for state lawmakers. So oh, yeah. Just, just to <laughs> tell you how much toner I spent on this interview. But under Article 5, the Convention of States, right now, right now today, there's... My understanding is there's several amendments, if you will, or proposed amendments out there that could be brought up if 34 states all agree on that. One of them is, uh, of course, the balanced budget amendment, which doesn't scare me too much. What are some of the other ones out there? I know term limits. 
the balanced budget amendment uh, has has the most applications. Remember, I mentioned they need 34, right. and they claim 29. I'm not sure all of them are valid, but they, they're they're within striking distance. So that's that's one. And uh, by the way, I want to say that I don't endorse particular amendments. I'm just kind of a, a source of information about them. Right. Um, a, another one which has gotten 10 states to endorse it is called the Convention of States. It's a it, that's the name of the organization. And uh, their proposal would be a convention limited to three topics, uh, fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the size of the federal government, and term limits on federal officials. Then there's another uh, organization. They, they only got one, I think, at this point, and that is to impose term limits on Congress. Of course, that idea has been kicking around a long time. Right. Uh, there is still another one, which is from the left. It's the only one that's kind of from the left, and that is uh, to uh, have campaign finance reform. Five states have endorsed that. Um, and then there is also a very interesting one, uh, which Florida has endorsed, which is to, to impose on Congress a single subject rule. You know, 41 states have a rule which says that you can only have one subject in a bill. It can be a broad subject. It can mm-hmm. only be a one, one subject. And the idea is to impose that same rule on Congress so you don't have these enormous cromnibus bills. Right. So those are some of the, those are some of the uh, initiatives that are out there. Obviously, all of them are really popular. You're not going to get any constitutional amendment uh, that doesn't have the support of the overwhelming majority of the American people. That's just political reality. Just from a pragmatic logistic standpoint, you've got to get 34 states to agree to the same amendment and then Congress calls a convention, or they, they, yeah. they okay, now they're required to, right? They can't. That's right. Can't That's f- exactly right. Um, the, the, you had 34 states who agree generally on the topic, okay? okay. Uh, the topic could be quite narrow. It could be a little broader, um, but, but they define the topic. Then, as you say, Congress has to call the convention. Congress actually acts as, a, as an agent for the state legislatures in calling the convention. Okay. And it. By the call, I, what I mean is um, uh, they set forth, the, they, they recite the topic, they say when the convention's going to meet, you know, no Alaska, and, and yeah. they give it, yeah. which is probably what Congress would do, yeah. and, and, then, and then they would, and then they give the date. Yeah. Um, January 3rd in no Alaska. Yeah, January, yeah. Uh, February, February 31st. Yeah. <laughs> but right. but the, the point is they have to call it. Once the convention meets, if the convention wants to move to a different location, they have that right. <clears throat> But, okay. but they are bound by the agenda. Each, each state legislature decides whether they want to participate in the convention. We've never had a convention where every state has participated, but we've had pretty good participation. Right. So, so they have to decide whether they're going to participate, and then they, they elect people called commissioners. Uh, these are delegates, uh, but the term, formal term is commissioner. And then they go to the, the, the convention. Every state gets one vote. The convention sets up its own rules, elects, elects its own officers, and then sits down and gets to business. And as I said, we've had over 40 of these things, so there's not much mystery as to how they work. So when they get down to business, then, the next definitive step to making an amendment is 38 states have to agree to it, right? Well, uh, not quite the next step. What happens then is the convention decides, are we going to propose an amendment? They, they can say, you know, we've been called to, to consider a balanced budget amendment, but we don't think one is necessary or we're okay. not agreed, and so they, they can break up. We have had conventions of states in the past that have just broken up without doing anything. But if they do decide to propose an amendment, 
At that point, uh, it, it's going to go to the states. It's going to be up to Congress to choose. Are we going to send it to the, to the state legislatures or are we going to send it to state conventions? And they've used both methods, okay. state conventions or state legislatures. Once that decision is made, then the, then the states start considering. You need 38 states. And usually there's a – most of the modern amendments has a time limit, usually seven years. So, you, you know, you don't have forever to make the decision. Uh, so uh, that's why – or one of the reasons why any amendment that comes out is going to have to be – that have strong popular support, uh, right. uh, some flaky amendment or, or some extreme right-wing or extreme left-wing amendment is just not going to get adopted. We're speaking with Professor Rob Nadelson from the Heartland Institute and the Independence Institute about Article 5 of the Constitution for State Lawmakers. Rob, i got a few more questions, but i got to take a quick break. Can you hang on for a couple minutes? I'd be delighted. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're spending a little time with Professor Rob Nadelson. He is the country's leading scholar on constitutional amendment procedure, senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and the Independence Institute, where he also heads the Article 5 Information Center and also author of the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant. Professor, a couple more questions. One, uh, you kind of touched on it before we went to the break, and that was, I guess, seven the states have seven years to ratify, essentially ratify this and get the 38 states' approval. From beginning to end, that's a long time frame process, isn't it? You know, it can be even longer. It's only, yeah. <laughs> Gary, it's only limited to seven years if the amendment specifies seven years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, right. The most famous example is the 27th Amendment. This is an amendment that limits federal pay raises. And um, it was first proposed as part of the original Bill of Rights in 1789. It was drafted by James Madison. Uh, it was not ratified by a sufficient number of states for many years. In the 1990s, someone discovered that it only needed a few more states to be ratified, and it was finally ratified in 1992, over wow. 200 years after it was proposed. Wow. Well, generally speaking, when Congress has proposed an amendment, and I think probably when the convention proposes an amendment, it'll say, you know, that's too long. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll limit it to seven years. But the process can be uh, quite lengthy. But it kind of makes me laugh when you think about it. Madison needed fewer states to ratify it than we did in the 90s, didn't we? That's, that's I mean, we right. had more states. That's so. right, had a lot more states. So. Uh, Madison only needed, needed 10. Today we need 38. Uh, now, I, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, on you while we got a couple minutes left. Every time I get a person who, who spends a lot of time studying the Constitution and and the, the Founding Fathers' uh, original intent, that kind of stuff, I, I always – have to make the comment to get your opinion because many people I've run into today think that we are so much smarter than the founding fathers and that they didn't really know or anticipate where this republic would go or end up. But every day I, I learn something that tells me these are really, really pretty bright guys, weren't they? 
Yeah, they were they were exceptionally bright, and not only were they bright, they weren't just bright in an academic way. I mean, you look at the 55 uh, men at the Constitutional Convention. These were people who had experience in business, they had experience in politics, they had experience in war, in agriculture, in diplomacy. I mean, they they pretty much covered the waterfront. Um, so investment. Uh, the, the, the guy who headed the convention, George Washington, was probably the wealthiest man in the country. He had gotten very wealthy through land speculation. And so these were, these were a bright bunch of people. And you can tell it in the document itself. One of the, one of the points I make in that book you referred to, the original Constitution, is that this document is actually a lot more sophisticated and clever than you think it is. Um, you know, people get people get uh, tied up in the debate. You know, do we have a living constitution or or a rigid constitution and so forth? The answer is we have we have it both. I mean, we've got a constitution. They they knew how to draft a clause when when they wanted it to be rigid, and they knew how to draft a clause when they wanted it to be flexible, and they knew how to do do everything in between. It's an exceptional piece of constitutional work. It's not perfect. But it is truly a monument uh, to, to human wisdom. I agree. And we spend one day a week trying to learn a little bit more about the Constitution and get a little more of that information out there. So, uh, Professor, I really appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. This has been terrific. I will read your original Constitution book. I always like to read the books of the people I talk to. And like I said, I did print off the Article 5 handbook. So I will read that before we talk again. So I know a little bit more, but uh, this is very important stuff. And I think we need to get the information out there so that we don't fall for the Armageddon trap and the fear that's put out there. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much. I'm Gary Rathman. It's an economy of one, your free market voice of the U.S. Gary Rathman, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me tonight is one of my favorites. Joining me now is Peter J. Wallison. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and co-director of AEI's program on financial policy studies, where he researches banking, insurance, and securities regulation. As general counsel of the U.S. Treasury Department, he had a significant role in the development of the Reagan administration's proposals for deregulation of the financial services industry. He also served as White House counsel to President Ronald Reagan. He's author of Hidden in Plain Sight, What Really Caused the World's Worst Financial Crisis and Why It Could Happen Again, and Bad History, Worst Policy, How a False Narrative About the Financial Crisis Led to the Dodd-Frank Act. Peter, welcome back to An Economy of One. Uh, Great to be with you, Gary. A couple things I wanted to talk about. One is kind of what's in the news all over the place this week, and that's everybody talking about the nuclear option, the nuclear option. First of all, tell us a little bit. I mean, you're, you're an inside guy. I mean, you've been in Washington in politics for a long time. What's going on in the Senate? I mean, it seems to me like, you know, if, if there's something on record that this guy sneezed in 1984 and and uh, used a Kleenex instead of a hanky. Somebody's going to write him up on that. What's the what's the attitude here? 
Well, I think the Democrats are responding to a very energized left that is angry about the Trump election. Mm-hmm. They're angry about Merrick Garland, who um, uh, Obama had proposed for the Scalia seat, but the Republicans didn't vote on. And they are just trying to uh, respond to their contributors and those very angry uh, left-wing voters. So that's that's what we're watching here. The Democrats really have no choice. They have to oppose um, Gorsuch, he's an excellent judge by every standard. He's gotten the highest ratings from the American Bar Association. He has he writes beautifully. He's obviously an intelligent person. If anyone watched the hearings, mm-hmm. so he's a perfect judge. And uh, the Democrats are so angry about the fact that they lost the election, and their uh, their base is so upset that they want these guys to march over the cliff and uh, force the elimination of the uh, filibuster rule in the Senate, which which is a shame, but yeah. if it has to be done, it will be done. Now, that's what they mean by the nuclear option. And am I right that this isn't the first time the nuclear option has been put in there? Didn't Senator Reid uh, do something similar? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the Democrats were complaining um, under Obama that the Republicans were not approving enough of the judges. Obama was uh, proposing for the courts, not the Supreme Court, but for the for the appeals courts and for the district courts. The Republicans were finding fault with some of Obama's uh, uh, proposed judges. And so the Democrats decided, well, we have a majority here. We will eliminate the uh, the filibuster rule the we will we will use the nuclear option which is the elimination of the filibuster rule mm-hmm. so that you can approve these candidates um, with just a majority and you don't have to have 60 votes to get someone uh, approved so uh, this, the Democrats did it first and at the time uh, I think most of the Republicans were shocked and angry about that mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell certainly was the leader of the Republicans certainly was angry about it. But now um, the Democrats are being so unreasonable um, in in opposing a perfectly good nomination, one of the best people ever to be uh, nominated for the court, mm-hmm. that uh, they, uh, Mitch McConnell has no choice but to use the nuclear option for the uh, Supreme Court seat that is now open. I think it's a big mistake on the part of the Democrats to do this. But um, if they if they insist on forcing that through, it will happen. Oh. And the real danger for them, frankly, Gary, is mm-hmm. that the next nominee by uh, Trump, President Trump, may not be as good as Gorsuch. And yet the nuclear option has already been eliminated and the Republicans can vote that nominee through uh, with just a majority. Whenever I I hear the phrase nuclear option when it refers to Congress, I have a totally different fantasy going here. But that, that's, that's another story, sure. you know, another show. But is the nuclear option, is it a one-off? The next nominee that comes through for whatever reason, do we have the same process? Do we have to do the nuclear option again? I mean, this no, doesn't really no. get rid of the filibuster, does it? Oh yes, it will oh. for the Supreme for Supreme Court nominations in the future. 
Um, oh, unless wow. that, it's, it's hard to see how it could ever be brought back. What did Senator Reid use a nuclear option on, and is that filibuster for that particular type of situation gone forever then also? Oh, yes, that's gone. That's gone. I mean, the, the Republicans could have, uh, well, just to answer your question directly, Gary, mm-hmm. um, what he used, what Reid used the nuclear option for was to eliminate the filibuster for appeals court judges. Okay. And they and they packed the uh, district, uh, the, uh, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia with Democratic uh, judges at that time, mm-hmm. um, and that has actually had quite an effect on how that court has been ruling recently. That's the most important court after the Supreme Court is the is the uh, it, uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, um, and so they packed the court with Democrats by using the nuclear option, but they did say that it would remain in effect for. Uh, Supreme Court nominations. I think they assumed at the time that they were going to have control of the Senate and there would be a Democratic president, and so they wouldn't really have to worry too much about it. Um, But uh, unfortunately for them, that's not the way the election worked out. (laughs) Well, and that's that's why we have elections, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Elections Uh, have consequences. That's right. Let me switch gears on you uh, for just a little bit, because I know your area of expertise is in financial regulation. And and one of the the things I've said for a long time is the bane of my existence is Dodd-Frank legislation and the CFPB and that kind of stuff. And part of why some of us support Trump and supported Trump is to get rid of Dodd-Frank or at least some of the more really bad aspects of that legislation. How is that coming in, in your mind? It's still in existence. I haven't seen any, any real conversation about repealing it or uh, modifying it a lot, but where's the, the CFPB and, and uh, Dodd-Frank at right now? Well, um, there is still a lot of um, Activity going on, and there's still a lot of interest on the part of the Republicans and the conservatives in Congress in, if not repealing Dodd Frank, substantially modifying it. There might be a few things left if they are successful, but right now there's a lot of eagerness to get started and do that. The trouble is that they have to schedule things in the in the in the House and the Senate, and as you know. Uh, they started with trying to eliminate Obamacare. Right. Um, the, after Obamacare, which they had hoped to vote through a couple of weeks ago, they were then going to start on tax reform. And after tax reform, they would then turn to uh, dealing with the Dodd-Frank Act. So it's still very on everyone's mind actively. Um, I know there are going to be hearings coming up on in uh, the House and Senate committees on on these financial issues, but uh, right now they've got to they've got to try to solve this Obamacare problem and then turn to tax reform, and after that they will probably get to um, uh, Dodd Frank, and that probably mean the summer sometime. I get anxious for this kind of stuff, and of course here in the Midwest we don't really really understand federal government bureaucracy very well. <laughs> Come well, on, let's make a decision and move on. If it's the wrong decision, we'll make another one, you know. 
but uh, it just seems to go at a snail's pace. Uh, I, I got yeah. about a minute left. I want to just ask you a general question once again because of your experience in Washington. And I've been doing a lot of research and talking to several people that have written about President Reagan and, and his time in office. And I got a guy coming up in a couple of weeks about his time before he became president, that kind of stuff. As the years go on, I mean, we, we look at President Reagan a, a lot more fondly and uh, nostalgically and wish he was back with us in his communication style and stuff. Have you ever seen in politics, in, in not just federal, but also I see it in the state politics, have you ever seen this kind of vitriol, this kind of purpose, hatred, and sabotaging that, that we have today? No, I actually haven't. It's, I've been around Washington now, well, as an adult for <laughs> 40 or 50 years, yeah. and uh, I, I have just never seen anything like this. Um, the it's not just the, the the polarization of the parties; it's the way the media is yeah. behaving in Washington. Um, so such dishonesty, such bias. Um, uh, every time uh, President Trump tries to do something, um, they they attack him for that. As soon as um, he raises some other question, such as the possibility that he might actually his a uh, campaign might have been surveilled electronically by the Obama administration. Um, they deny that that could possibly have happened. Right. And uh, then, of course, it turns out that this, there is a lot happening and a lot coming to light that indicates that the Obama administration may well have surveilled right. the Trump uh, campaign. And now they're ignoring that issue entirely. You can't get most of the media people to talk about it. So um, it's it's very discouraging, and uh, we've just got to. Uh, President Trump has to be successful in a number of areas, get a lot of his stuff done. The American people will then respond to that and be pleased with that, and then the media will stop this uh, constant campaign, and the Democrats will have to do the same. Yeah, I, I, I firmly agree. And once again, reading a lot of the history of President Reagan. I don't think it was nearly this bad, but he went through some tough times in, oh, he in sure winning, did. winning over the public and the electorate and and uh, the media and stuff as well. So, uh, uh, absolutely, I, I think. Well, uh, go ahead. You may not remember this, but he, in his first months in office, he was attacked mercilessly by the oh, media. Yeah. yeah, and then then he was there was the attempted assassination. Yep, and yep. he was shot. And that raised a tremendous amount of sympathy for him among the American people, and they that shut off a lot of that attacks, those oh, yeah. attacks. So he was able to be much more successful. But Republican presidents frequently face this kind of problem with the Washington and at least the you know elite media. Right. They're very bad, very tough. It's funny you mentioned that you, you're saying that, and I can still I still have this image in my head of him waving from the hospital in a hospital yep. gown. You know, he That's didn't right. seem in the normal tie and suit that you always saw. <laughs> That's right. so, uh, well, Peter, That's this right. is this has been a real treat for me. Uh, we've been talking to Peter J. Wallison, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Great books. I don't have time to elaborate too much, but I understand you got a new book coming out soon. Can't wait for it. 
And yeah, uh, well, actually, it will be out soon. I hope another, maybe another year. That's soon for book writing. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I will look forward to that, and and uh, I'm sure uh, if you got the time, we'll we'll chat again uh, very Great. very soon. So uh, thank you very much for your time, and I hope you have a good evening. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Rarely in the past have we seen the political self-interest so clearly as this last week in the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. I've said for a long time that politicians care about one thing and one thing only, and that is getting reelected. When a politician wins an election in November, the next day, the first thought that enters their mind when their foot hits the ground getting out of bed is, what do I have to do to get reelected and maintain my power? What do I have to do? I get the impression that there is very few People. I won't say all because I never say always and never say never, but there's very few people in Washington that truly care about anything other than themselves. Now, I'm all for being an individual. I care about myself first, my family first, that kind of stuff, but not to the detriment of someone else or my country. I really don't think these people care much about America, and they certainly don't care about the individual, you and me. When you look at special interests and special interest attitudes, the membership of the group, whatever they're advocating, justifies special treatment to the existing members and a cost to future members. Now, an example of this is minimum wage laws. People advocate minimum wage laws, promoting helping low-skill workers. And it's true that there are those that are lucky enough to keep their existing jobs, keep their hours, keep their working conditions, on-the-job training, promotional possibilities, and all that kind of stuff can gain from a rise in the minimum wage. But other low-skilled workers will lose their jobs, will have their hours cut, will have training cut. They are harmed. And it leads employers to reduce the number of jobs and trading uh, opportunities available to future workers. Too many people in in Washington, and, and they try to rationalize what they're doing to help people, but the truth is it helps existing people and does harm to others. You've heard me talk about minimum wage several times, and I'm a firm believer that the minimum wage is zero. Because if you don't have a job, 
you don't make any money. Rent control is another one of those issues. People who are currently renting an apartment that, that comes under rent control would benefit. It essentially lowers what they pay and locking in their rent for years. But that's at the expense of property owners. And eventually it's at the expense of future renters. A Swedish economist, Asar Lindbeck, once commented, next to bombing, rent control seems in many cases to be the most efficient technique so far known for destroying cities. Why would I risk capital and build an apartment building knowing my hands are going to be tied as to what I can get for rent? doesn't matter what the market will bear. It matters what some bureaucrats decide is fair rent. Why would I do that? Why would I put any money into an existing building if I don't get any more money back? So Lindbeck is absolutely correct. A good way to destroy parts of the city is to have rent controls. Because eventually, there will be no quality rent. And we can see that in cities like New York City. California is trying to put in a rent control bill that would allow local governments to dramatically expand their rent control issues. It's going to kill the market. Trouble is, the politicians don't care because that crisis, that killing of the market, creates an opportunity for them to use more taxpayer money to help the people that are suffering or victims of their legislation and get them to vote for them so they can keep their job, so they can get reelected, which is ultimately what they want. They don't care about you and me. They don't care about the individual. We have to care about ourselves, and the only way we can do that is conscious effort. Gain wisdom, gain experience, gain knowledge, not just have access to information that's on the internet. Wisdom comes from experience. Experience comes from poor judgment. Learn by what we're doing. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 